Hi everyone, Leah Hickson here. Looking forward to talking about rewinding reactivation. A deep dive into the viral infections from the herpes viridacea family. April 13th, please go to www.bioceuticals.com.au for more information. This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph, a Melbourne-based chiropractor and naturopath, and joining us today is Dr. Carlo Ronaldo. He's a registered chiropractor, researcher and educator. He's the clinic director and founder of BrainHub, a multidisciplined clinic that focuses on complex neurological conditions including post-concussion syndrome, vertigo, migraine and paediatric neurodevelopment. He has completed a PhD in vestibular rehabilitation at the University of New South Wales and is currently involved in further research in vestibular neurorehabilitation. Dr. Ronaldo frequently presents and teaches practitioners across the globe on similar topics. Carlo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Damien, and thanks to the listeners for uh, taking the time to hear what we have to say and talk about it. It's going to be such a great podcast and I'm really grateful for your time, Carlo, because your wisdom, I went to one of your seminars many years ago, the one that you presented with um, our great friend Paul Bergamo and it really was one of the great seminars that I've ever attended and it just it blew my mind. So, And I've always been hungry to share to, you know, to the public, I suppose, or to the professions at large um, your knowledge because I think it's outstanding and I think a lot of people will get a lot from what we're going to be talking about today. Great, thank you. Let's, uh, all the pressure's on. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> hey, Carlo, um, I want to ask you a couple of questions just to kick us off. Um, the first question, and I'm going to dovetail these questions, put them in the same sentence, but the first question is what is proprioception and then how changeable is the brain? Two great questions and, and one that I have uh, interest in and, and I guess as practitioners, uh, chirop- as a chiropractor, um, it's one that uh, I think dovetails really well into our practice and, and our teaching. Proprioception, I guess, if I had to look at a definition, would be really the the connection between the muscles and ligaments and the brain and that feedback mechanism. Um, We have embedded in our muscles and ligaments and joints these sensory organs that give our brain and body an awareness of where we are. Now, interestingly, we think of muscles as being a, a contractor, something that we shorten or gives us power or strength. But a good part or a good portion of muscle function is actually sensory function. So you have all these sensors and all these proprioceptors that are embedded in these muscles and ligaments. And as we move, they tell the brain where we are and what we're doing. And the brain talks to our muscles and says, okay, well, that's not where I expect it to be or we're going too fast or too slow or we're going to miss that ball. And so it refines and adjusts and that that output and the brain then talks to the body and says, okay, is that a better copy of what you want? And the brain says, well, we're getting closer to it. The wind's blowing from the left to the right. Well, we need to adjust to it. So that interaction between the environment and our brain is really passed through our proprioceptors. And we've got so many of them. And as chiropractors, um, why we take such a, an interest in it is that the spine, in particular the upper cervical spine, is heavily innovated or densely populated, I should say, with these proprioceptors far more compared to any other part of the body. Um, So it's one that we know 
when there's a problem with it, it has a big bearing on our brain, but also we can, um, by affecting the spine through our therapy or any adjunctive work that relates to the spine, we can have a profound impact on resetting these proprioceptors and then resetting the body's connection with the environment. So uh, proprioceptors is a real, um, it, it's a real niche, it's a real um, entry point that gives us that, that aspect of understanding the communication between the body and brain. And I guess going to your second question about how changeable is the, is the body or the brain uh, extraordinarily. Um, and one of the ways in which it is is through proprioception and proprioceptors. Um, so we know that it's, the body is very malleable and changeable and, and we love the word neuroplastic, that ability to change. And um, we know that if we give it the right nutrients, and nutrients not necessarily just food or, or drink or whatever it might be, but, but stimulation and, and environmental triggers, then we know that the brain can, can adapt um, now it's a double-edged sword. <clears throat> it's, uh, it works both ways. We can we can help it, but also someone's negative thoughts or negative actions can also create bad um, changes or bad neuroplasticity, so to speak. Great answer, and what a great way to intro this. And and I love the idea that in the cervical spine there's so many proprioceptors. And the reason why I ask those two questions together is because there is a lot of discussion around proprioception, um, neuroplasticity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and I think that um, you know the understanding that. Uh, neuroplasticity exists a lot of people kind of think that neuroplasticity stops when you're little or stops when you're young but if you think about you know the work of say Norman Doidge where he you know he wrote a great book the brain that changes itself and that kind of really highlighted that whole neuroplasticity space if you're practicing something and I've just started playing golf and I don't know if many of the listeners know that I love playing golf I'm sure they do by now but I I've just started playing golf in the last five years and I feel like my game's getting better and I'm nearly 50 and so I continue to remember that and I interviewed a guy on my podcast 100 not out and his name was Stephen Jepson at the age of 72 years old he started to learn how to do walking on a slack line and then taught himself how to juggle and pick up marbles with his left foot crossed over his right you know, foot, and he was doing all these sorts of things, and mm-hmm. that highlighted at different various ages. There's still the ability of the body to retrain and to, you know, I suppose harness neuroplasticity. And uh, and so the reason why I put that together is because proprioception really is a fundamental component of this neuroplasticity component, or you know, subject that we talk about. Certainly, um, I guess going back to your point about uh, ages and neuroplasticity and that it, it, it continues through the span of life. I certainly couldn't uh, agree with you more on that. I guess what has to happen, and one that becomes a bit more challenging as we get older, is you need a couple of key ingredients for neuroplasticity. You need to be engaged. So you need to have someone that is willing to be involved and willing to change. It needs to be progressive. So. Uh, you know, your therapy or what you do needs to change and be graded based upon the level that they're at. And always, is it like a 5 or 10% amount that you want to go a bit over and above where you're at? Because the brain relishes that, that opportunity to change. It certainly doesn't like doing the same thing over and over. So your therapies or your, your treatments or your exercise, it needs to be that progressive aspect to it. And the final thing, novelty. There needs to be 
something that the brain goes, oh, this is different. How do, I, how do I navigate around that? How do I learn that? How do, what resources do I need to pull in my brain to be able to, to accomplish that task? So those things, as long as you have them, and you could, I mean, that, that's not age-dependent, we just seem to find that, obviously, as we get older, we tend not to, they tend not to be a dominant, but they, they're required. And as long as you have those key ingredients, I'm confident that no matter what age you're, you're at, you have the capacity to change or that you have that neuroplasticity capacity to change and to, um, to move you to that next level. So there's got to be that buy-in. There's got to be that, that what's in it for me. There's got to be that drive. There's got to be that reward of, wow, I've got to that next level. Or maybe I can get to, you know, go back to your analogy of, of golf. You know, maybe, well, maybe I could get into the seniors because obviously you're at that age. You know, seniors is probably... Oh, it's very hard to swallow. It's very, it's so true, but it's very hard to swallow, I've got to tell you. Um, so, you know, if there's, a, if there's a task or a target that you're working towards, um, and obviously you need to have the substrate, you need to have the good nutrition, you need to have the good rest, you need to give all that. And let's, let's say that's all given. Mm-hmm. If you've got those three key ingredients, then I'm pretty confident, and I think the literature supports it, that anything is possible. Oh, I love that. Carlo, I just want to hang on that point for a second because, you know, where we can take people through this podcast and take them a little journey, you know, in the application of what it is that we're talking about. Often as a naturopath and as a chiropractor, I might have recommended to people and I still do recommend that they go for a 30-minute walk um, on a, you know, at least a daily basis. And if they can go, you know, and do extra stuff, then that's fantastic. But the benefit of that is, is profound. I also recommend that people do stretching, stretch your chest muscles out and open your thoracic cage up and, you know, get on a posture pole, do all those sorts of things to kind of help activate uh, various parts of the nervous system that help to promote um, repair and restoration and so on and so forth. Like these are all good neurological hygiene things, you know, to do. But when you say that I need to change it up, that I need to encourage people to do something slightly different, for the practitioners that are listening to this, what might be a change? Like what might you think of? Would you say, oh, maybe aim to go faster or would you say, you know, take a different terrain or would you say maybe do it barefoot? You know, what sort of you know, things might you suggest in that space? There's an important concept in neuroplasticity and one that I use with, within my research. It's called context specificity. Context specificity means we do better at what we train most. So if I'm sitting at a desk all day and all I do is do uh, exercises that sit down in a chair and move my eyes and move my fingers and so on, that's not going to translate necessarily to me being a better tennis player. So for me to be a better tennis player, I need to add context of holding a racket, standing, translating or transferring from side to side, following something that's fast, like a tennis ball. Um, you know, as therapists, we should be including these in our, in our patient's care as well. So that, that context specificity is really important. Specificity matters. Doing something general is going to give you general improvements. Doing something specific will give you specific changes. So if, you know, whatever that context is, and I've had, I've had ice hockey players you know, at a, at a semi-professional level that have come in with concussion. And we've done sort of the standard protocols in our office and got them 
feeling better, their memory, their, 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 their symptoms have really abated. But they come back to me and say, you know what, I feel good until I hit the ice and then I feel, I feel those symptoms return because, you know, it's the movement, it's the context of other people's movement, it's the translating on the ice, it's, it's whatever it might be. So some number of years ago, I had to, sort of took the idea, okay, well, let me, let's add this into your, let's try to add therapy in the context of the environment in which you experience these symptoms. So I started to go to people's work, place of work or their, their sporting arena. So this guy here, we actually had to do rehab exercises. Him standing, firstly standing with his, his skates on, with holding a, um, a stick. And then we got to a point of proficiency there. And then I'd actually go to go with him to the ice. And we were doing uh, therapy and exercises that were con- that were specific to him moving on the ice. Now, I'm not an ice skater, so <laughs> that was interesting. But nowadays, <laughs> we use virtual reality in our office that can augment some of these more challenging environments and place someone in the context of what they're experiencing. To give you another example, we have many persistent dizziness patients that have issues driving or have dis, uh, issues in a, sh- in a shopping centre or in a lift. So now we've got virtual reality systems that can place people in these environments and we can challenge or minimise the complexity of the environment and then, you know, at, at a 10% uh, increment to where they can handle. And we basically help the brain adapt neuroplasticity, so they can be better at uh, integrating that sensory input. So the brain goes, oh, okay, you know what, that's not so much of an issue for me. I feel okay with it. And their symptoms reduce and they go about their life. So that's that's a really important point, that context specificity. And it's one that I would encourage practitioners of all sorts to give thought to and ask patients, where do you experience your issues? Where do you experience your symptoms? and try to replicate that, if not in the office, outside of the office. Because in my opinion, if if we can't do that, then really we haven't really translated those results uh, as a home run. So cool. That's so cool. That's so cool. And I'm thinking in my practice, and I know that all those people out there doing nutrition are thinking, oh, my gosh, now I've got to go to the pub with my patients and <laughs> teach them how to read a menu, you know? How am I going to get them to choose steak and veggies versus the pasta carbonara, you know, kind of thing? So there's that context specificity piece that you just spoke to, which I absolutely love, and it makes so much sense, Carlo. That's that's gold. And essentially what you're talking about here is neuro-rehabilitation. And so you're actually – you know, following on from post-concussion syndrome, for example, or people who are suffering with long-term vertigo or, you know, people having migraine for decades of their life and children in neurodevelopment, you're trying to find ways in which you put them into the environment to give them that opportunity to rehab in that space. Is that what, you, is that what we're talking about? Exactly. Now, it's – and there's a fine line. It's not an all or nothing. The brain will basically say, okay, that's too much of a – of a difference from where I am to what you're providing, and it will either ignore it or symptoms will be provoked. So as the practitioner, it is very important, um, and you may remember from the course some years ago, Damien, that it's it's titrating and it's it's providing a, an incremental increase in what they can handle. And again, I use that 5 to 10% increment and it's what they can tolerate, just tolerate. And the brain learns to go, oh, you know what, that's, 
That's not such a threat. I don't feel threatened by that, particularly when we look at people that have got anxiety or depression or, or, or hypervigilance type of conditions, which many people do, particularly if it's a chronic neurological condition. So the last thing you want to do is evoke an emotional response. You know, the last thing you want to do is get someone in that sympathetic dominant state. So providing a very tailored, incremental, progressive, graded therapy um, is one that, in my opinion, a practitioner should always be aiming to do. Um, and particularly the sticky patients, particularly those that are a bit more sensitive, particularly those that, you know, have had you know, not the great experiences with others or even with your previous care, they're telling you, hey, don't go too hard. Just use a more blunt instrument rather than a big hammer at the moment and just be cautious in the way you you provide that care. And home exercises and obviously nutritional support, emotional support should all be titrated at that amount. Yeah, I'm loving that. I'm loving that sort of gradual approach. And I think there's a tendency for a lot of practitioners to try and vomit over their patients mm. all of the knowledge that they've got and all of the things that have got to happen. And so in a report of findings or in a preparation of a schedule of care, whether it be through nutrition, naturopathy, general practice, um, chiropractic, physiotherapy, whatever it is, often with the excitement and enthusiasm of a practitioner, we'll tell our patients way too much information and, uh, and, and go way beyond that 10%, um, I don't know, what, what do you call that? Probably a, a 10% kind of capacity or shift capacity mm. or even like, yeah, that titrating approach is is very clever. I really love that. Carlo, um, often we hear about chiropractors and other musculoskeletal um, practitioners affecting the body, you know, affecting the way in which, um, you know, the body perceives pain or the way in which the body can perform, you know, whether it's with reflexes or whatever else. Um, and, and to me, this is a brain interaction. Um, but could it be more specific than the brain? Could we be talking about a specific component of just you know, brain function? And where, where would we go with that? Is this more of a vestibular thing? Yeah, great question. Um, I think if there's anything that I know, um, it's the brain is not linear. Um, it, it's certainly not a, a one, two, three sort of step scenario. You do one thing, you get this response. There's too many variables. There's too many networks at play. There's too many connections. There's too many experiences that someone's had that, will alter what we do and what they experience. So definitely linear is just not, it's just not simple. And unfortunately, a lot of traditional care is given, is sort of aimed at that. And it's just very limiting. Um, in terms of the areas of the brain or parts of the brain that are involved in this, I mean, there are many, unfortunately. There's, again, there's never a simple answer. Um, more recently, there's a there's sort of a school of thought that looks at body maps, maps in our brain that give us an awareness of our surrounding. And I, and I often teach that almost every issue, at least musculoskeletal based, that we see in practice, in the, uh, with the exception of traumatic injuries like, you know, being hit by a car, for instance, but let's put that aside. Most injuries that we see are repetitive strain, are load-based injuries, uh, you know, those sorts of things. I am confident that all, if not many, of these injuries are due to a, 
an alteration between the facts and our reality. So what we think is happening to what is actually happening, there's a disconnect. And that disconnect can be in the shape of many things from visual, from vestibular to to proprioceptive. You know, we tick a ball, you know, we talk we look at footy players all the time that, you know, that spring the hamstring. We think, what, what's going on there? All he did was kick a ball. Um, he's probably done that a thousand times. Well, it's probably because of altered joint mechanics, of altered biofeedback from those proprioceptors. There has been some disconnect with the action of what he's attempting to do to what actually he did, and there's a load on the muscle and, and, and the muscle tore. So we see this. So these maps in our body, um, there's many of them. One that most people are familiar with is what we call somatotopic maps. And again, it goes back to that proprioception. Somatotopic maps are um, these, these funny-looking maps that we have in our brain, in particular our parietal lobe, that, give, that have a localization of our body parts. So if we look at these somatotopic maps, you know, there, there's an over-representation of our hands and our feet in our brain because, because of the dexterity that we have, because of the precision that we need to have with our hands and our lips. These areas are blown up in our brains, meaning... Is this the homunculus um, thing we're talking about? The homunculus, exactly. That's, yes. that's, a, that's a more exact term for that, correct. Mm-hmm. So most people are, are aware of these somatosensory maps. There's motor maps as well, which do the opposite, which gives us um, the control of these body parts based on, our, on, the, on, on these regions in our brain. But what most people don't know is there's also um, retinotopic maps. And as the name suggests, there are maps that relate to our vision. So I can close my eyes and, and I know where things are in space. Um, I can move my eyes precisely in certain directions because my, my brain has a map of my visual world. There's tonotopic maps or sound-related maps. I can close my eyes and someone can click a finger and I can turn my head or I can, I can identify where that sound is coming from because my brain has an, an auditory map of where sounds are coming from. And there are other maps and there's also vestibular maps. So I can spin to the left or spin to the right or I could move forwards or backwards. Again, with my eyes closed, I'm not getting any other sensory impact, sensory feedback, but my brain is recognising that, oh, I'm moving forwards or I'm moving back or I'm spinning to the right. You know, when we're in a lift and we can detect our, our, our body moving up and down, you know, we're in a lift and we don't see the outside, but our brain is understanding and recognising where our body is. So going back to your point, these maps are incredibly important. And for many of us, there's a, a mismatch of these maps where what we think we're experiencing to what is actually occurring, there's incongruency or there's a sensory mismatch as they often refer to it. And many spinal, many peripheral joint problems, many uh, anxiety-based problems, uh, navigating. I mean, I could list so many things that one would experience that often are the result of these altered body maps. And as practitioners, our job is really to, as I describe it to patients, we're there to help identify which those maps and to help calibrate it.
because that's really what we do. And our spinal adjustments or our nutritional support or our exercise or, or our vestibular therapies or our eye movement exercises are all aimed at recalibrating these sensory maps and typically in combination with each other, which is why therapy should, in my opinion, should always be very multimodal because you just, you're hitting all the highlights of the areas that typically we find challenging with people. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, you asked me a question, I'm never going to answer it as, um, <laughs> as clean as probably what you expect. <laughs> I'm voting Carlo so, one for the next PM. That's a great answer. But uh, that's just so great, mate. And again, it's this contextual piece um, around helping your patients move through care, not race through care, I think is a really great and it's very important for people to, you know, be mindful of the staging, the stepping out of a person's care when they come into your care, um, help them through it, you know, offer them guidance and support over a longer period of time as opposed to trying to just get the job done very, very quickly because it's a process. Um, and there's a few things that actually that you said there that rung true for me, um, particularly around mapping. Uh, I'm sure there's an olfactory map, you know, like sometimes you'll smell things mm-hmm. and that brings up a memory. So often maybe what you're talking about, which we might have categorized loosely as memories at some point in our life, maybe this is that mapping thing or is that something that's similar to that? Is Would I be right in thinking that? It's, it's certainly a memory and olfaction or smell are very, very primitive. Mm-hmm. in our developments as, as humans and embryologically. Um, I don't know if there's a, a localization map as such, mm-hmm. but certainly memory uh, mm-hmm. are incredible. I mean, we, all of us will have had some experience where we, we walk past a shop and we smell something like a bakery shop and we immediately cast our mind back to our grandparents, our grandmother making this particular cake at age five and the yeah. emotion that that brings back. Now, so again, that's, that's a double-edged sword. You know, there right. are times when we smell things and we, it may, it may rem- remind us of uh, burnt rubber of when we were involved in a car accident and we've got a sure. very strong visceral response to that. So, yeah. again, it goes both ways. But, you know, olfaction and memory are, are hardwired together. Carlo, I want to switch into um, a subject that you're very passionate about and uh, and you are an expert in this space. And I'd love for us to kind of delve into the vestibular system and um, and really kind of understand a lot of our patients will be suffering with migraine. A lot of our patients will be suffering with vertigo, many ears disease, for example. And I'd love to really understand um, more about the vestibular system. So I'll just start with a question. Is the vestibular system dizziness only? I know that may, it maybe sounds very simple, but is it only dizziness that the vestibular system deals with? No, because no, the answer to your question, no. Um, and even dizziness, we almost need to unpack the word dizziness because, again, what people described as dizziness may not be necessarily um, you know, how we like to define it. Um, but no, some, the vestibular system, because of its um, broad uh, and extensive connection to almost every part of the brain, many of these, these parts of the brain aren't necessarily related to what we would term as dizziness. So there's obviously a strong component to it, and if someone presents with dizziness, vestibular system is one that we need to unpack further. Um, but no, they're not 
necessarily uh, interchangeable as such. It's great because it just it makes the vestibular system massive. Like it's not just mm. this tiny little area that's kind of in the inner ear area. It's like you just kind of it, all of it becomes big. So in the development of the vestibular system, you know, conception has taken place. There's a growing fetus. Um, that's all happening. What happens in utero with the vestibular system and its development? This is, it's a great question, one that I'm, I'm so happy you asked because it's one that I, I, I teach almost one of my first few slides when I teach is just to get people's attention to know, hey, the vestibular system is not just about dizziness or not just about you know tiny rocks in the in the, in the ears. Um, at 25 weeks gestation, so in utero, bub is developing in mum. At 25 weeks gestation, the vestibular system, the organs that help us understand how we're navigating in the world, are fully developed. I'll repeat that. Wow. At 25 weeks gestation, the vestibular system is one centimetre cubed in size and it is adult size. Now, really? it's not proper, it's not fully functional, but it is anatomically developed. And there is no part of the brain, particularly at birth, that is adult size or, or even close to it at 25 weeks. So it, to me, when I, when I tell people that, and one of the reasons we have that is one of the most primitive actions that a fetus has just after that age is the, the capacity to rotate and move. Mm -hmm. And that happens because of the, of the vestibular system starting to become active, starting to orientate itself in, the, in mum's womb and know where up is, where down is, and how to move away from threats. So it is a very primitive action. Now, think of it. If it's developed at full adult size, at 25 weeks gestation, unlike anything else that's happened, even the other parts of the brain are, are not developed at maturity at that age. It must tell us of how important the vestibular system is in terms of our neurodevelopment as a bub. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it can't be by accident. No. <laughs> it's not by accident. No. no. So if it's there at that age, then it really serves an important role. And we see that during the first few months and years of age. Everything's about orientations, about knowing where am I, lifting the head up, turning the head, looking with the eyes, developing spinal muscles. These are all and primitive reflexes. These are all vestibular-driven responses, attachment, um, social engagement. These are all, again, really important, and it's driven in, in, in a lot of part by the vestibular system. So the vestibular system is not just what happens in the inner ear. It's broad connections to many other parts. That's so cool. 25 weeks, I just, I, mm. it just blows my mind. It blows my mind and it blows my mind for such a number of reasons, um, particularly in and around. You actually, you said something which I just I love and that is that it's not by accident. And I don't think there's much that happens that grows in the body mm. um, by accident, even in, a, even in an appendix. I don't think is an accident. I think that's really important. You know, like a lot of people just whip these things out and go, oh, you don't need it anyway, but you do. Anyway, I digress. But I'm thinking about the vestibular system. Obviously, it's involved in that very early and, it, you know, it's developing and feeling presence and and position sense in utero in a gravityless environment, you know, more or less, you know, in a 
tight environment inside the mother's womb. It's, there's movement, but it's very limited, and, but there's so much happening. What happens? Because this sounds so important. Like This sounds so important in the development of a child, the development of a human being. What happens after birth? What happens to this vestibular system after birth? What if someone's just lying on their back all day, every day when they're born? Yeah, unfortunately, like every other part of the body, it is res- it responds to our environment Um, and it will grow and it will learn, it will navigate, it will make mistakes and learn from it. So that only occurs with experience and be placed in, in, again, graded, progressive, novel environments. And laying on your back or in a bamboo or strapped into something and too worried about something's going to occur will make a difference to a baby's development. And for any of your practitioners that, that have seen, that see kids or have seen kids, uh, if we go through their history, you know, parents come in with their blue books and we look at, you know, their development at certain ages and we see, oh, wow, Johnny didn't like tummy time or Johnny didn't roll over or Johnny couldn't sit independently or Johnny couldn't crawl. These are all milestones and landmarks that we use to say how developed is the brain. And invariably, you'll see that the vestibular system is intricately involved in that development or lack of based on movement. So this is why trampolines and climbing and, and rumbling and, and rolling over and, and... Spinning. Doing all... all being, being a kid. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm confident, you know, I'm, I'm sure you would, you would agree with this, I'm confident that many of the kids that we see in practice um, are are living in an environment that is somewhat different than what you and I and probably the older people um, have experienced in that, you know, we learned the hard way. We climbed up trees. We had playgrounds where you fell, you got hurt, and you got up and you did more. It wasn't all padded. It wasn't all cordoned off because it was dangerous. Um, and, and I feel that that I think a lot of – and a lot of that is vestibular-based, you know, the spinning and the, and the climbing and the moving the head and, and focusing as I, as I move my body, as I ride a bike, as I – these are all very vestibular-centric activities. So we spend a lot of time, unfortunately, with care in just reprogramming some of the things that are being missed just in normal development. And don't get me wrong, there are, some, there are many kids that obviously that, – that's not the reason. There are other, other genetic or, or, or – um, Acquired conditions that that that's not the case, but but for a good many people, I, I think that we've missed a lot of those early steps, and a lot of it is vestibular and movement based. It's it's so important just to consider that and the movement. And I know that you know as a dad, I used to just wrestle with my son Jackson, and we just I'd roll and tumble and do it very safely. But of course, you know, roll and tumble and throw him around and. All those little things that I used to have done to me when I was a little boy and just passing that on through the generations. I do see a lot of people try to wrap their children up in cotton wool, don't pass them around to other people, you know, don't let them, you know, crawl near tables just in case they bump their head. But these are all such important little steps and stages for children to develop their brains. But at the other end of it, at the other end of um, of the nervous system in terms of age and years, um, we see lots of things happening these days. You know, there's motor neuron disease, we've got Alzheimer's, dementia, we've got all these neurodegenerative diseases that are going on. Um, is, is there 
much that we can do to prevent that? Is there much that we can do to treat that, manage that in our practices? What what can we be doing to help people as their brains are aging? What can we be doing to assist them in, in maintaining the health of the spine and the nervous system? Look, um, great question. And I think one that, again, is, requires a, a very broad answer in that there's, there's lifestyle, there's nutrition, there's proper sleep, there's um, purpose in life, there's um, the relationships we have with ourselves and others, there's a lot of emotional. So put all of those aside for the moment, and not for a moment am I saying that they're not important, but they certainly are. But I guess where my focus is is probably more on the, on the rehab aspect. Again, going back to the vestibular system and its connections, we know, and there's a lot of good evidence to say that there's con- strong connections between the vestibular system and our frontal lobe, which is our cognitive, our executive function part. It's our uh, attention and focus. It's our, um, our decision-making. It's, um, so there's strong connections there. And when we're seeing, you now whether it's an associative or a correlative uh, or a causative type of relationship, this, this jury's still out on that, but there's certainly a connection between um, the vestibular system and high cognitive function. So there's been some good papers that have looked at vestibular therapy, so movement-based therapies, therapies that involve balance and coordination and left-right integration, cross-body exercises, um, eye movement exercises, spatial awareness exercises. That has had a profound effect, a significant effect, on people with dementia, Alzheimer's, frontal lobe atrophy, uh, obviously stroke and, and those sorts of conditions as well. So there's, there's good supporting evidence to say that some uh, that those therapies, again, more targeted, more context-specific, the better, can make a big difference. I mean, things like the Nintendo Wii board was, I think, um, a recommendation now in a lot of nursing homes to help people combat um, Alzheimer's because there's an... Again, there's an engagement. There's an engagement part. There's a, oh, I want to do better. I want to move to the next level. So there's a, a dopamine reward system that goes with it, which, which That's comes so cool. from the brainstem and the our frontal lobe just is bathed in those receptors. Um, there's, you know, the engagement with other people. You can, you can compete against your, your, your colleague. Um, there's, you know, spatial navigation. You're, you're navigating a figure on the board through a tunnel or through a, um, through a maze. Um, there's eye movements. There's sound integration in that as well. So there's so many things that that tie in a lot of these more complex conditions. And I'm not necessarily saying that it's reversible or a cure to these conditions, but certainly we approach it with our patients in terms of um, improving outcome measures. And, and that outcome measure may be balance. It may be um, uh, self-rated questionnaires about um, stress and about confidence of life. It might be about uh, walking up and down stairs and the strength that we have. Um, yeah, there's, many, there's many outcome measures that we can use. And these therapies help that. Again, not necessarily reversing the condition itself, but certainly making the quality of life um, uh, we can improve that, and many family members of people with these conditions are very appreciative that you know we've been able to restore some memory. They've been able to uh, understand or, um, or or identify family members 
um, or become a bit more independent. And you know, independence for people um, later in life is is a, is a real concern for them. And I know we can we can certainly help them with that. Yeah. Oh gosh, this is such a big meaty topic, and you know, I think we could probably keep on talking for hours and hours about how we can train the brain and. Um, rehabilitate the neurovascular or the, the neurological system, you know, particularly with reference to the vestibular system. And how we've, I've learned how important the vestibular system is. And I want to, like, very quickly, just before we finish, we did touch on the nutrition. I mean, I was always under the impression that the brain needed very, you know, specific things. It needs oxygen, stimulation, and Sugar. That's that's kind of what I learned um, in uni. That's what I kind of took away. But is there anything specific that you might be using in practice that you might be, you know, thinking about that people would require for a healthy vestibular system or a healthy nervous system, Carlo? Yeah. Look, I think um, obviously, uh, aside from the macronutrients and the micronutrients aspect, we know gut health to be extraordinarily important. A lot of the um, neurotransmitters. Uh, are produced within the gut. There's a strong brain-gut connection, as we know, via the vagus vagus nerve. So ensuring that the gut is healthy um, is something that we should all be achieving. So that's, again, a, a given that that's occurring. Um, inflammation, um, autoimmunity tend to be big things that we see in practice. So we certainly want to make sure that um, that they're run through the appropriate channels and, and people to assess that. Uh, and for, for most people, it's it's definitely more more than just your standard blood test that most people would be um, getting from their GP. Although it's a good place to start, it's it's generally not enough to identify these things. So autoimmunity, inflammatory, and then and then that, from that, nutrition can be um, obviously more accurately prescribed, and whether it be anti-inflammatories or brain-based. You know, turmeric is a great one. Resveratrol um, uh, is a is a great um, supplement that we often suggest. Um, uh, things like um, hoopazine, um, medicinal mushrooms are, are great ways to shift people out of that fight and flight state into a more of that parasympathetic uh, dominant state. Come the other things that I would I often look at with patients is. Um, blood sugar handling issues and iron-related issues. So you mentioned fuel and oxygen and glucose and things. Sure, but we need to make sure that what carries that to the brain is not impaired. So we often look uh, and dig deeper on those aspects, particularly if their history is indicating um, some blood sugar handling issues or some oxygen carrying capacity issues. So, you know, I think... I often, before I start getting into the specifics of nutrition, I want to rule out things like autoimmunity, particularly if there's, again, I mean, the history can, can guide you on that, any inflammatory conditions, um, if there's a history of concussions, you know, inflammatory issues are a real problem. Um, so you want to look at that blood, blood sugar, uh, blood oxygen carrying capacities, um, metabolic components that relate to uh, thyroid also make a difference. So again, it's there's never a simple answer on that and, <laughs> um, that I could give you. But you know, essential fatty acids. Keeping keeping in mind the com- uh, uh, composition of uh, all the neurons. You know, we're very big on phosphatidyl serine, phosphatidyl choline as being. Um, precursors and requirements. Um, we're big. We're big compo- uh, proponents of a ketogenic diet. 
particularly for those that have had a concussion. Um, it can certainly help um, glial uh, or calm down glial um, immune responses in the brain post-concussion. So it depends on the person. It depends on what we suggest. But typically, moderate carbohydrate, high good quality protein, high fat diet, good, again, good, good quality fats, are things that we recommend, some nootropic type of supplements like your medicinal mushrooms, your hoopazine, green tea extract can be, can be good as well, um, a ketogenic-based diet, and ensuring that we've got all the, the adequate components that ensure the brain is getting the fuel and, and supply that it requires. My gosh. You can see, um, and I think everyone who's listening to this, that's amazing, Carla. You can see how important it is to be co-managing in these sorts of spaces. You know, it's very important for us to be working with multi-practitioners and different, you know, skill sets. It's not just up to the chiro. It's not just up to the GP. It's not just up to the naturopath. You know, we've all got to be working together in this space. And you can imagine if you're a patient and you need all of these levels of intervention, how important it is to have professionals that are keen to work together. It's so important. And Carlo, you've driven that home beautifully today and your knowledge is um, unbelievable, unparalleled. So Carlo, thank you so much for joining me today. I've thoroughly enjoyed interviewing you and chatting with you. And I know that our listeners will have got so much from you. Thank you, mate. Thank you, Damien. It's, uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure. And, um, we can always continue on, but, um, but I, think, uh, I thank you and the audience for the opportunity to have the chat. Thanks, Carlo. Now, to get more information, head to brainhub.com.au. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all of the show notes, transcripts, and other resources on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to Dr. Veronique Chiche about the health impacts of intermittent fasting. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode.